not a man on the street interview, so we thank eSurance for giving us a commercial we could show. Um, we're not endorsing eSurance, by the way, but uh, uh, it does sort of illustrate the fact that we are talking here about something that's awkward to talk about. So <laughs> those of you in the Forest Fan Club, you just came at the right time. So. Uh, you're going to have to bear with us because we're doing this whole sermon series on the fact that there's certain topics that churches don't talk about and uh, pastors don't talk about in the pulpit and they're awkward and they're uncomfortable and we're just tackling a few of those in this sermon series called This is Awkward and we already covered the topic of money and we're now three weeks into the topic of sex and if you think that that is going to be controversial, don't worry, because next week we start on the topic of politics, okay? Yeah, so um, that is why Ricky said don't bring real eggs, because <laughs> no eggs, no tomatoes, nothing like that. I'm trying to protect me with that. Um, but this is our last week devoted to the topic of sex, okay? So, so this is a big kid topic that we're getting into today, and it's, it's different. And so if you're with us for the first time today, hey, just bear with us. Um, hopefully this will be uh, useful to you, but this is not how we always talk about stuff. Sometimes we talk about other stuff. Um, and this is going to be the last sermon in this series devoted specifically to this topic, although we'll be dealing with it in the next couple of weeks a little bit as well. Um, and I'm finally going to get to some of the specifics. We've been talking in generalities about God's creation of sex and how he intends it to be used and all of that kind of stuff. But if you don't know, we have, a, um, we have an anonymous online question portal on our website where people have been sending me questions and topics that they want to see covered in this awkward series. And those, those questions keep pouring in. And so... What I'm going to be doing today is trying to tackle some of the things that I know are on some of your minds. And I know they're on your minds for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, I know it's impossible to believe for some of you, but once upon a time, I was young and single, okay? So I can relate to that. I've been a counselor for about three decades now. And uh, in my counseling ministry, I sit and talk with people who are dealing with issues on this uh, topic all of the time. Um, also, I've been married for over 30 years, and on top of that, I've raised three kids, and on top of that, I used to be a youth pastor. So what I'm trying to say is I know something about this topic, but still, I'm terrified to talk to you about it. Um, and so the, the, the beauty of this is that God's Word doesn't just leave us guessing. He doesn't leave us just in a place where we have to go, gosh, what does the latest pop psychology have to say? Maybe I'll go to Barnes and Noble to that section and go, what, is, what do the books have to say on this? God gives us in his word a whole lot of information that we need on this topic. So we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, and I'm just going to tell you right up front, this is without question going to be the most awkward of the messages we've heard so far. And so I'm going to ask uh, anybody that gets offended or anybody that gets a little uncomfortable or anybody who gets nervous about all this to hang in there with me. Bear with me. If you'll stick with me to the end, I think you're going to see how all of this comes together. And so uh, hopefully at the end, you'll see that. And today I'm going to deal with some of the specific questions that are on people's hearts. So are you guys ready for this? Yes. All right. Well, it's good that you are because I don't know if I am. 
But here we go. You know, there's a whole lot of talk in our culture about the topic of sex outside of marriage. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, it's very well known that our culture has, has been gradually getting to a point where the idea of sex being reserved just for marriage is a very old-fashioned idea to most people. Most people sort of shrug their shoulders and laugh at that and say, maybe back in the 20s, maybe back in the 1800s, maybe never. But today, I don't think that sex outside of marriage is really an issue. Um, so the question comes up, what does God think about sex outside of marriage? What does God's word have to say about sex outside of marriage? And you may think the answer is obvious, but in this culture, the answer is not obvious, especially since it's not just, you know, whoever, quote unquote, those people are out there who, who have these wrong ideas about it. But in many churches, this topic is dealt with in an extremely broad way that basically is aimed at making sure we don't offend anybody. And it's really tough, you guys, because on the one hand, we want to make sure that people understand that Jesus' arms are open to us, that all of us are sinners, that all of us have issues in our life, whether they're in our sex life or elsewhere, and, and that uh, God doesn't just put up walls and boundaries and say, if you have sexual sin in your life, you're not welcome here. On the other hand, we don't want to go so far as to pretend like there's no such thing as sin when it comes to sex. And so we're going to see what the Bible has to say about it. And to do that, we can just start with the seventh commandment, okay? So all of you Bible scholars out there, who could tell us what the seventh commandment is? Come on, have some courage, say it loud. Nobody will say it loud. Come on, you chickens. What is it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. If I set you up to not get one wrong, that was it right there. You know the topic, right? The, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. It comes right after the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not cheer for the Trojans, right? So, sorry, I said I might offend somebody. I said, um, <laughs> anyway... Uh, you could find those commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, they're there. But the seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery, which leaves us this question, what the heck is adultery? And, and so I'm going to just give you a definition, a working definition of adultery. Adultery is any married person having any kind of consensual sex outside of their spouse, okay? So, so if you're married and you get sexually involved with someone outside of your marriage, that's the definition of adultery. It's pretty simple. It's pretty cut and dried. So the scripture tells us, don't do it. It's very, very simple. It's very clear. It's very to the point. And I don't really have to sell this one because most people agree that sex outside of marriage is morally wrong. Most people agree with that until they get attracted to someone outside their marriage. And then they start justifying it and saying, yeah, but in my case, if only God knew and all of that kind of stuff. But the Lord is extremely clear about this. He says, do not do it. It's sin. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's all throughout the scripture. He tells us not, not to commit adultery. If you're married, don't get involved outside your, married, outside your marriage. If you're single, don't get involved with somebody who is married. It's pretty clear. So that covers married people. But what about to unmarried people? 
Last week, if you weren't here last week, let me just tell you, we covered this. We showed some studies how basically um, the age of puberty, the onset of puberty, has been dropping dramatically over the last hundred years or so, so that instead of puberty hitting about 16 and a half, where it was about a hundred years ago, it's now hitting at about 10. And so people now are, are hitting puberty around 10, and marriage has gone from a place where people got married typically at 16, 17, 18 years old to a place where now the average age of marriage in America for a male is 29 and the average age for a female is 27 and 25% of millennials will never get married. Okay, so that creates a huge problem and that problem is from the age of roughly 10 until either the point where you get married or for the rest of your life, you are a sexually mature being and outside of marriage, there's no way to live out your sexuality that is acceptable to God. And that creates a huge challenge. Does God really, seriously now, in this day and age, does God really want us to reserve all sexual activity only for marriage? That's a question that a lot of people are really struggling with. And biblically, the answer is yes. God really does want that for us. And God really does expect that of us. We talked about this last week, but there's a, there's a word that is repeated many times in the New Testament. And the Greek word is porneia. And it's from the word from which we get our word pornography. And it means any illicit sexual activity. Okay. And that word shows up multiple times throughout the New Testament, and oftentimes the context gives us the exact meaning of that word. Um, but it's translated as fornication. It is translated as sexual immorality. It is translated as immorality and in most cases. But in general terms, it refers to any sexual act that takes place outside of marriage. Okay? And the Bible defines marriage very clearly. We did this in Genesis 1 and 2. Again, if you weren't here for this and you're interested, it's all available online and in the podcast. Go back and listen. Uh, but we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and we asked if God has a definition of marriage, and we put the scriptures together, and we saw that God's definition of marriage is something along the lines of one man and one woman living in a covenant relationship together in a commitment for life. And so the Bible speaks very clearly about marriage, it speaks very clearly about sex, and it speaks very clearly about sex outside of marriage. Now, if you're not already offended, if you're not already thinking, oh my gosh, I hope he shuts up soon because I'm about to hit this guy, you're going to get more angry in a second. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6... The Apostle Paul addresses this issue. Now, guys, what I'm about to read you is extremely offensive. It is absolutely politically incorrect. It is the kind of thing that people march against. And yet here it is right in the scripture. So we're going to have to grapple with it and see what the Lord means and what the Lord is saying. But let's just read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything." Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says, the two shall become one flesh. That's referring back to Genesis where we read. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, and that's that word porneia, The sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, that's pretty clear. It's clear to the point where I always feel like I have to apologize for how blunt Paul is being here. Okay? Uh, He's describing life-dominating sin, and he's saying that if there is sin that dominates your life, then sin is acting as your Lord, and Jesus is not acting as your Lord. Now, let me be clear about a couple of things. Sin is a part of every person's life. Can anybody say amen to that? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how often you come to church or how many good works you do. We all have issues with sin. And some of us have issues with specific sins mentioned on this little list that Paul gives us, which is not an exhaustive list at all. It's just an example. And he's basically saying, listen, when there are sins that dominate your life, then Jesus is not dominating your life. And if you belong to your sin, you do not belong to Jesus. He doesn't say those who swindle. He says swindlers. He he doesn't say those who don't always tell the truth. He says liars, right? He doesn't say somebody who went too far with his girlfriend in the backseat of the car. He says fornicators, He's talking about life-dominating sin, and he's saying that if sin dominates your life, then God does not dominate your life. You're not a part of God's kingdom if your life is characterized by habitual sin. And if you're offended by that, I don't blame you. I'm offended by it too. But hang with me, because I think when it all comes together, you're going to see that this very uh, offensive passage actually leads us to a place where God gives us something wonderful. But if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then you are not your own. The scripture says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's not just your mind, it's not just your heart, but it's your body that also belongs to God. And he specifically says, do not be joined to a prostitute. Again, that's a derivative of that word porneia. It's not necessarily just referring to prostitution, it's referring to sexual sin. 
And, and he says, if you're joined in sexual sin, then you're becoming one with someone that is not your, um, that is not your spouse and is not your Lord. And so flee sexual immorality. Don't justify it. Don't leave room for it in your life. Don't pretend it's no big deal. Flee. Run for the hills. Get yourself out of the situation that you keep stumbling in. Remove yourself from temptation. Now listen, this is true whether you're married or single. This is true whether you're male or female. This is true whether you're attracted to members of the opposite sex or you're attracted to members of the same sex. Whatever the situation might be, if you have sexual temptation that comes under the category of adultery or sexual immorality, flee from it. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. It's bad for you. It'll drive a wedge between you and God. It will mess up your relationships. It will leave scars in your heart. It will have an impact on your life and you will never be glad that you did it. And the temptation that, that is swinging in front of your face, that shiny thing, and you think, boy, I'll be fulfilled if I have that. Once you have it, it is never fulfilling. It's like being dying for thirst in the desert and you see a mirage off in the distance and you use your last energy to crawl to that mirage so you can get that water in your mouth and you just begin lapping the water into your mouth only to find out that the water is just sand. And that's basically what God is saying. I'm not trying to keep something that you should have from you. I designed you. I created you. I love you. And I'm trying to keep you out of trouble. Therefore, trust me with this, he says. Sex outside of marriage is sin. I know it's not politically correct. I know it's not popular. It just happens to be biblical. Now, if that was awkward for you, take a deep breath because it's about to get more awkward. Because some, one of the questions that I've been dealing with off, off and on that keeps coming from various sources, married and unmarried, is okay, if I'm going to be honest, and I would never say this out loud in front of a crowd, but what about masturbation? You guys okay? All right. Well, let's see what the Bible says about that, because um, over here in... Uh, well, maybe it was, uh, it's, I think over, maybe, maybe it was in Psalm, nothing. The Bible doesn't say a word about masturbation, and it must be because it, nobody's involved with it. That must be why. Um, the Bible does not directly address this issue at all. There's one passage that sometimes goofy preachers tend to quote. It's in Genesis, and it says that a, a man wasted a seed on the ground, and it has absolutely nothing to do with masturbation, so don't listen to that baloney, okay? The truth is the Bible does not address the issue directly. And the fact of the matter is that it addresses the issue indirectly with bigger principles, and a lot of times there are specific things in life that we don't know the answer to. You can't just go to a page in scripture and go, should I buy a Ford or a Chevy, right? You're not going to find your answer in there. You, you, you can't just go to the, to the scripture and ask yourself, should, should I go to college at Penn State or should I go to college at Yale? You're not going to find the answer in there. Okay? But there are some principles that God gives us that helps us make these decisions. And this is one of those categories. Listen, I'm just going to be really frank and honest. It is theoretically possible 
for there to be masturbation in somebody's life that is not sinful. It could be a situation where there's a married person and the spouse has been severely injured and the sex life is impossible now and all of that and the person only thinks about their spouse. And we could come up with a set of uh, scenarios in which we would say, you know what, I'm not sure that it's sinful in this case. But listen, if it involves lust, it's sinful, okay? And so now we've got 99.9% of actual masturbation is sinful, because it involves lust and involves selfishness. So um, we need to be aware that there might be situations that are exceptions to this, but in general, it's not good for you. And the Lord says, stay away from it. Okay, so that covers some of the stuff outside of marriage. And some of you first-time visitors are going, oh my gosh, why am I here? (laughs) But does the Bible put restrictions on sex inside of marriage? Now, there's a question a lot of us are interested in. Um, First of all, any activity, sexual or otherwise, that is forbidden in general is forbidden whether you're married or not married. Does that make sense? Right? You can't go, well, it says don't murder, but now I'm married so I can murder. Right? By the same token, there are are sexual, sexual activities that are forbidden in Scripture because they're, they're heinous, such as bestiality, okay? So bestiality is forbidden, and if you get married and you want to engage in bestiality, being married doesn't change that. Bestiality, multiple partners, abuse, homosexual activity, all of this kind of stuff that is forbidden in general is forbidden in marriage or outside of marriage. But as long as it's not unloving or abusive or forceful or demeaning to your spouse and it doesn't fit into any of those categories, God doesn't put further restrictions. What he does is encourages us to love one another and work it out with our spouse. But again, there are big principles. Love, kindness, respect, dignity, honor, all of those kinds of things. So why in the world would you want to engage in something that doesn't involve any of those things or breaks those principles? So, um, oh, there is one thing, though, that, is, that, that, that the Bible does say about sex within marriage. Some of you will be thrilled to hear this and others will be mortified. But the Bible says that sex within marriage is supposed to be readily available. That's what it says, okay? So so decide whether you're mortified or happy to hear that, but that's what it says. I want to read this to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know some of you are like, man, I had no idea the Bible spoke so directly about such intimate things. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, and, and the context here is sex. And here's what it says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Then likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, how popular is that kind of thinking today, right? Listen, there's something about marriage that is dangerous. There's something about marriage that is dangerous, and that is why we take vows before God and enter into a covenant, not just with the person we're marrying, but with God. Because, because marriage is to be God-honoring, and our spouse is supposed to be absolutely safe with us. The problem is that every one of us married a sinner. If you're married, you're married to a sinner, right? You don't have to say amen, I know, okay? 
If you're married, you're married to a sinner. And that's a problem because that means your husband is not completely safe. Your wife is not completely safe. Part of what it is to give your heart to somebody is to put yourself in a position where they can hurt you. And, and Paul says, yeah, that's what makes marriage fabulous. Because when you put, a pers- you put your heart in a person's hands like that and they nurture it, there's nothing like it. There's nothing so bonding as that. And so sex is the ultimate vulnerability. And it's supposed to be that way in marriage. Do you see why sex outside of marriage makes no sense? There has to be that kind of devotion. So uh, the wife doesn't have authority over her own sexual body. The husband doesn't have authority over his own sexual body. They give it to one another when they take their vows. And so it goes on, and it says in verse 5, so stop depriving one another. I know some of you want to say amen. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you and because of your lack of self-control. Okay? So, so he says, even if you decide that there's going to be a short period of time in your marriage where you're not going to have sex, it needs to be mutually agreed upon. It can't be, hey, by the way, I decided no sex this month, okay? It has to be the kind of thing that you mutually agree upon, and it needs to be for a spiritual purpose because God has called you to it, like for an extended time of fasting and prayer, and then it says that as soon as that time is over, come together again quickly, lest you be tempted. So guys, one of the things that we look the other way on in the Christian church and pretend is no big deal because no one ever talks about it to anybody else is the fact that in so many marriages of Christian people, and it's not just Christian people, but it's people in general, but I understand it with people in general. I don't understand it with people who have the Holy Spirit, okay? So I'm, I'm talking to you if you're a Christian. If you are married and you just decided that, you know what, that we have awkwardness or there's our marriage is not great or whatever, and so sex is just not going to be a part of our marriage, you're in sin. God designed it for something better than that. And I'm not going to tell you what that has to look like. You've got to work that out with your spouse and your Lord. But the scripture is pretty clear that he expects sex and marriage not just to be a bonding agent that on the honeymoon people come together and now they've become one, but that that being one is celebrated regularly. That's a normal part of our Christian lives together. Okay? Now, I'm going to, I'm going to cover one more big question that keeps coming up and is on many, many, many of our minds. And that question is this, what if I've already messed up? What if I'm already way outside the bounds of what God has said sexuality is supposed to be? What if, what if you know, my virginity is so far gone that I can't even remember the time that I lost it? How do I go back and get that again? What if I'm same-sex attracted and I keep stepping into those same um, holes and temptations. What if I messed up my marriage by cheating on my spouse and now everything is ruined? Or, or my girlfriend and I, we want to serve God, we want to honor Him, but we keep setting strong boundaries about how far we're going to go, but we keep knocking those boundaries over, and the more we knock them over, the easier they fall down the next time, and it's just really difficult for us to get this back. There's a lot of people that for various reasons are going, man, is there any hope for me? And that's where I want to take this for the rest of the time that you've allotted to me. Uh, you know what? If you went to high school in this country, 
you probably were given a reading list at one point and given a choice of classic American literature to choose from. And many of you chose a book written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. What was it called? The Scarlet Letter. Okay? The Scarlet Letter. Now, uh, how many of you have read The Scarlet Letter? All right, I'm not going to ask you to write a book report or anything. I just want to know if you read it. Okay, so the Scarlet Letter is this, this famous piece of American literature. Basically, Hawthorne writes this book, and it's set in a couple hundred years ago, or maybe more, 300 years ago, in, uh, in um, New England, in the Puritan days, and the days of the, of the pilgrims and all of that. And um, there is this woman who's not married, who becomes pregnant and has a child. Her name is Hester Prynne. Okay, Hester Prynne becomes pregnant. She lives in this very religious community and everybody is upset about this. They argue about whether they should put her to death or not. And then they decide rather than put her to death, we will be merciful to her. And what we're going to do to show our mercy is we're going to make her wear a big red A on her chest wherever she goes. So whatever clothing she's wearing, she has to put this A on her clothing and A stands for adultery right? She has committed adultery. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure she never forgets it. And we're going to make sure nobody else forgets it about her. We're going to make sure that everybody knows she's damaged goods. We're going to make sure that everybody knows she's a terrible slut and she should not be respected or honored in any way. And all throughout her life in that village, she's a good person who does good things and tries to ignore the fact that she's being ostracized and being judged all the time. And she will never reveal her secret as to who the father is. And if you remember, the big twist in the book is that the father is who? The pastor, right? Some of you said that kind of with the scornful, like, <laughs> don't be like that. There are some good pastors. <laughs> I've heard about them. But in this book, the pastor is the father of the child and he won't reveal it. And he lets her undergo all of this shame and mockery and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the book is kind of complex and it has a lot of points to make, but one of the main points of the book is this. People, especially religious people, are hypocritical. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Okay, so we, we, we who are Christians wear this, uh, this scarlet H on our chest, right? The, this is the reputation that Christians have, that we are hypocrites. And to be fair... It is a well-earned reputation, okay? We got to own that. And so there's a lot of hypocrisy among religious people. There's a lot of religious people who love to stand on their ivory tower and wag their finger at those people who they think of as less than. And, that, and frankly, our culture and our society is sick to death of it. And so more and more um, religion in general and Christianity in particular are getting, becoming less and less of a significant voice in our culture, even though we have the message of hope, right? Because of this hypocrisy. Listen, guys, I want to be extremely clear. We all have sin in our lives. We all have things to be ashamed of. And yet too often we would rather judge others and mistreat them than to face our own issues and have to repent before God and deal with our own sin. And as a result, too many people have felt like they're walking around with a scarlet letter on their chest all the time. 
so that everybody's always judging them. Some of you may feel that way in your life right now. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You messed up in some way, whether sexual or otherwise. Somebody judged you. Somebody made you feel less than. Or maybe nobody even knows about your particular brand of sin except you. And you keep hearing this little voice in your head that says, God could never forgive you. God could never love you. You're a loser. You've blown it. Why would anybody care about you? And you think that there's no way out of it and that that's what defines you. Or maybe you've repented over and over and over and you keep falling in the same trap again. If that's true for you, then you have something in common with a rather famous person named the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, and I'm going to paraphrase this, basically says, I'm so sick of the fact that as much as I want to honor God with my life, I keep giving in to my fleshly desires, and I keep sinning even though I want to be a godly person. There's this battle going on inside of me. My spirit is waging war with my members. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? That's basically Romans 7. The great Apostle Paul struggling with sin, okay? But let me tell you something. Romans 8 begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, you didn't hear me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a thing of the past when you're in Christ. He doesn't just set you free so you can get to go to heaven one day and you don't have to go to hell, but he removes the condemnation. He removes the labels. The scripture says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's an incredible thing to realize that God can set us free. And so that, if that describes you, that you kind of wear that letter, you hear that voice in your head, I have something for you. And I want to wrap up today's message with this. It's in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just listen in because you've probably heard this story before. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So he's in the temple courtyard, okay? Now, the Jewish temple is made up of these concentric courtyards, and basically... um, Any Jew is allowed in the first uh, courtyard, but to go in the second courtyard, you have to have some sort of special, uh, you either have to be a priest or you have to be whatever, and you keep moving in that way. This is the outer courtyard of the temple, and Jesus is just teaching the people as they come to him. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, the pastors and the priests of the day. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, we don't know the details of this. We don't know exactly how this happened, but apparently she was caught in the very act. We don't know if it just happened that she got caught. We don't know if she had been brought to them with this accusation, but she was apparently caught in the very act. And generally, we read that as meaning that these guys somehow set her up, 
broke into the Motel 6, dragged her out of the bed, and took her down to this court where the priests and all the religious people are, and all these men are sitting around Jesus, and they throw her on the ground half naked before Jesus with her face hanging down because she's got so much shame. This is what these godly guys have done to her, okay? Now, Continuing on, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They're trying to set him up. Verse uh, six, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. So their idea is they want to find something against Jesus. So if they bring this woman and he says, yeah, stone her, then he shows that he has no compassion and no mercy. And then the people will turn against him. But if they bring her to, her to Jesus and he says, don't stone her, then he's saying, go against the Old Testament law way back when from a time before. And he's going to look bad to the religious leaders. So he's in a bad position. And so they say, what do you say? And he, he bends down and begins to write with his finger on the ground. I wish there was more commentary about that. I don't know what he was writing. I have no idea. I don't know if he was writing the sins of the guys who were standing there. I don't know what he was writing when he did that. But I think the point is not what he was writing, but that he was seeming to ignore them. I think if this was happening today, he would have been texting, okay, <laughs> and paying no attention to them. Meanwhile, this woman is lying on the ground, and, and this goes on. Um, verse 7, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. I want you to understand what's happening here. These men, these pastors, they've got her. She's caught in the act. It's the most shameful situation she could possibly find herself in. And they don't deal with her where they find her, but they drag her to the most holy place. And they put her in the courtyard of the temple. There's supposed to be a contrast. They're setting it up. Aren't we holy? Isn't this a holy place? Isn't she filthy? Do you see? And they're setting this whole thing up and they're carrying with them stones in their hands because they're holding on to some, some detail of the law where it says that if you have someone who's guilty of adultery, that person can be stoned. By the way, did you ever wonder where the man is? You wonder why there's a Me Too movement, you guys? Goes back a long way, doesn't it? Different standards for women than there are for men. This woman is being mistreated. She's being abused. And she's being used by these men who could not care less about her. They're just trying to take Jesus out, right? 
and they come with their stones in their hand. She's laying with tears streaking the dirt on her face as she sits in the, in the dust. And these men, these righteous men, in their white robes all around her with stones in their hand. It's a mob mentality. And Jesus refuses to get caught up in it. He kneels down and just draws something on the dirt with his finger. And finally, he looks up and he says, hey, listen, if any of you doesn't have any sin, you're welcome to stone her. And the scripture says, and don't miss this, that beginning with the older ones, the wiser ones, the ones who are not so full of testosterone that they can't wait to crush this woman, beginning with the older ones, they drop their stones. And as they drop their stones, they walk away in shame until there's no one left except Jesus. And this woman peeking through her hair looks up and sees there's no one left to condemn her. And Jesus says, is there no one left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. But she was actually wrong, wasn't she? Because there was one person there who even by Jesus' standard had a right to condemn her. The one who was without sin. And Jesus is there, the one without sin. And she's, she's on her knees there on the dirt before him at his mercy and she says, no one has condemned me because none of them had a right to. Jesus had a right to. But guys, Jesus doesn't want to condemn. Jesus wants to redeem. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. It's a fascinating story. You've heard it before, but I, I want you to pick up on at least three key things. First one is this. We need to listen to the voice of conviction, not the voice of condemnation. Listen, I don't, I don't know what your areas of sin are. They may be sexual, they may be otherwise. But there is a difference between the voice of the conviction of the Holy Spirit who shows you that you have messed up and you need God's grace. And that, and that voice is meant to draw you back to God for forgiveness so that you can have freedom. But then there's a voice of condemnation. And the voice of condemnation says, you need to turn away from God because he'll never accept you. You are broken. You're worthless. You're useless. Get away from God because all he's going to do is judge you. And when you run away from God, you run further into your sin and the shackles of sin tighten on your body and your freedom is gone. In hopes of freedom, you end up in bondage. We need to listen to the voice of conviction. Listen, if you're guilty, it's good to feel guilty. It's God's gift to you. It's like touching a hot stove and feeling the pain. It's good to feel that. It makes you pull your hand off the stove. God will redirect you by convicting you. And he'll pull you back to him where he can forgive you and cleanse you and, and renew you. But that false guilt, it's meant to hold you down and take away your freedom. If you've come to Jesus, if you've accepted his forgiveness, guess what? Your sin has been separated from you as far as the east is separated from the west. It's been buried in the deepest sea, never to be remembered again. That's what the scripture says. That's why Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second thing, 
Don't let sexual sin be the defining reality of your life. My heart breaks for this woman. Every time I read this story, my heart just breaks. She had messed up. I mean, let's just assume that she messed up. She's caught in the act. She, she did the wrong thing. And yet from that point on, she's a victim of these guys. She's being mistreated. She's being abused. These religious people didn't care about her at all. They were using her to make their point, And then at best, they were going to discard her. And more likely, they were going to destroy her. Listen, God never convicts us of our sins so that he can humiliate us and destroy us. He convicts us of our sins so that he can set us free. And some of us may feel like we've messed up so badly that we can't really come to Jesus. But just the opposite is true. The more you've messed up, the more you need to come to Jesus. All of us need to come to Jesus. It's not just that some of us are better than others. No, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And he reaches out his hands to all of us and says, come on, come on, come to me and I will meet you where you're at. Remember we read in 1 Corinthians that really offensive passage saying these people will not inherit the kingdom of God? People whose lives are, are um, defined by their sin. He says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're like, oh, that's so politically incorrect. That really, I don't know about that. That doesn't sit well with me. Listen, don't forget 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That's a big but. I feel like I want to turn around when I read this to you. So you understand, this is a seriously big but right here, okay? He says, listen, you were like that. You were lost. And yet Jesus washed you. But Jesus sanctified you. He set you aside and made you pure. But Jesus justified you. He took your guilt so you wouldn't have to carry it. Jesus sets us free. That's what we have to remember. Don't let your sin be your defining Factor. Let Jesus be your defining factor. Makes all the difference. The third thing, and I'll close. Don't take God's grace lightly. When Jesus refused to condemn her, he nevertheless called her to make some serious changes, didn't he? He didn't say, hey, your sin's no big deal. Why should people judge you? Don't worry about it. You be you. You do you. It's okay. He didn't say any of that stuff. You know what he said? He said, I refuse to condemn you, but go and sin no more. See, I want you to understand, if you're in Christ, you don't have to continue to be in the rut you've been in. Guys, this message is not meant to be uh, judgmental and mean-spirited. This message is meant to make something absolutely clear. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care how deep in your sin you find yourself. I don't care if you feel like your sin defines you and this is who you are and nothing can change. I want to be absolutely clear about this. What God's Word says is no matter how bad your sin is, you are not stuck. You're not stuck. Your sin doesn't have to define you. You can turn from your sin and you can turn to Christ and he can give you a new direction. Listen, 
When Jesus refused to condemn this woman, he told her to sin no more. You can have a totally different kind of life in Jesus if you want it. You can be set free from the power of sin that has been dragging you down consistently and you know it. And yet you just justify it and give it a different label and you don't call it sin and you just say, well, it's just my thing and this is how I am and and all that kind of stuff. But in your heart of hearts, you know you've been dragged down into this and you don't have to live there anymore. You can get out if you want to. You can experience forgiveness and grace and joy and peace with God if you want to have it. Here's my point. You are not stuck. Jesus died to set you free. Jesus died to give you life. God offers you more than forgiveness. He offers you a new life in Christ that's about joy and peace and hope and purpose. That's what he has in mind for you. But you need to stop resisting. You may feel like there's a lot of people standing around you with stones. You may even wonder if God is standing there with stones. But listen, there may be a lot of people with stones in their hands in your life. But Jesus has holes in his hands because he loves you. And he paid the price to set you free. So wherever you find yourself today, There is a Savior who loves you enough to go to the cross. And he has a vision for your life that is so much better than what we tend to settle for. And I just want to encourage you. Take him at his word. Receive his grace. Don't label yourself with your former sin. You can turn from your sin and be labeled with the grace and kindness of God. That's God's plan for you. People may not drop their stones so quickly in your life. But you don't have to answer to those people, do you? You have to answer to Jesus. And he loves you. Neither does he condemn you. Now go. Sin no more. Let's stand together and pray.